We're going to do uh, verses 1 through 11. We're also going to be a little bit in Romans 3, <clears throat> if you want to bookmark that, uh, particularly um, starting at verses, verse 10 there. Let us open our ears to hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, the wrath of God. For if, we while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. On July, uh, from July 1941 to October 1943, the Soviet city which is now the capital of Belarus, was occupied by Germany. Throughout that period, almost 100,000 Jews were killed in the Minsk ghetto. Before being murdered, they had to live in horrible conditions, separated from the rest of the city like rats in a cage. Everything in the ghetto was aimed at depriving us not only of the sense of dignity, but of the human form as well recalled Mikhail Trester, one of the Belarusian Holocaust survivors. He also said that starvation, freezing cold, rags, and identification marks were part of their daily life. They were eating potato pills for their main meals. In any violation of German rules, they faced only one punishment, death. 18-year-old Ilsa Stein, a Jewish young woman from Frankfurt found herself in the Minsk ghetto in 1942. By coincidence, at approximately the same time, a new officer arrived in the ghetto to serve uh, over its administration. His name was Captain Willie Schultz. He fought in the war 
He served in the Luftwaffe on the, Luftwaffe on the uh, Western Front. And after being wounded, he was transferred to Minsk and be put in charge. Upon meeting Stein, totally changed his attitude. It was madness, a love story in the ghetto where dozens of people are killed every night. Stein admitted this in her documentary about her life called The Jewess and the Captain. She said blood was running in the streets. It was terrible. If not today, then we would die tomorrow. It was impossible to escape the horror here. Nevertheless, the strangest thing happened. The Nazi fell in love with a Jewish woman. His love for Elsa changed him completely. Stein's friend from the ghetto said of Schultz in this documentary that he became a different person. Indeed, Schultz became a saboteur of the ghetto, perhaps the only German in Minsk who was actively trying to save the Jews. Time and time again, he would hide and protect her and her family and friends, saving their lives multiple times. The Germans became aware of what was going on and word got back to Schultz that he had been caught. There was only one thing to do. And so on March 30th, 1943, under the pretext of unloading wagons, Schultz commanded a truck and a team of 25 Jewish workers. That's all he could save, including Stein. And they escaped the city. And as they left the city, they got close to the area under partisan control with Russia. Schultz shot the driver and drove the rest of the way himself but not before the Germans opened fire on them. Schultz hurried his love into the cover of the woods, leaving him vulnerable to German fire. Stein looked back as the sound of rattling machine gun filled the air. There was Schultz in the clearing with his hands up. She shut her eyes tight and heard the sound of the machine gun firing again, and his final words faint, but somehow audible above the noise of the gun. I love you. The cold, ruthless, and bitter enemy changed by love and ultimately dying so that she may live. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, his enemies. Martin Luther once said about this text this morning, in all of the Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. Out of the whole Bible? I've often wondered why Martin Luther said this about their chapter, but it wasn't until this week that I realized that he struggled with depression and constant doubt about his own salvation. And this quote made sense. And I dare say that many of us this morning also struggle with depression. We also doubt our own salvation from time to time. And there is perhaps no better passage that gives us the assurance of salvation that we will also that we also so desperately desire. A hope that transcends any trial or hardship on this dying planet. This is our assurance of salvation and our hope for an eternity. Paul starts writing about our nature and the answer for it back in chapter 3. It says starting in verse 10 if you want to get there. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He just described us, each and every one of us. And the imagery here he uses is very vivid and blunt, that we are worthless. We deserve no good. Our tongues only speak to see, and venom of asps is on our lips. Our feet are swift to shed blood, and in our paths are ruin and misery. We do not know peace, because we have no fear of God. Do you see the imagery and symbolism that he uses here, as Paul does in all of his books? The use of the word asp here in connection with deceit. The serpent was the first liar, and who was the first serpent? Satan, the enemy. We speak its words when we lie. We think its thoughts when we lust. We live for ourselves with pride, thinking that we deserve good things because all, because we are good. And what always happens? We leave a wake of destruction behind us. It says in Genesis of the people of the earth that God flooded the earth because every thought of their head was sinful and every word from their mouth was ungodly. He killed them all. And this picture of war here in Paul's uh, account here in chapter 3, the shedding of blood, the spreading of misery and ruin, not knowing peace because we do not know God, we, we are the enemy. You will never fully grasp just how wicked and evil your flesh is. It's not just mistakes, it's sin. It's not just dirty little jokes, it's cursed talk. And not, it's not just a little white lie, it is deceit. It's not just double take at someone walking past you, it is lust. If you break one commandment, you have just broken every other one of them. There is this battle over your soul, and in verse 10, you and I are referred to as enemies. Who else is God's enemy? Do you see it? It's not just little, this little thought that God is good and Satan is bad and we're somewhere in between. It's not as good as God is. I'm not as good as God is, certainly, but I'm certainly not near as bad as Satan. Guys, you are either for God or against him. There's no in between. You and I the enemies you and I were just as bad and as wicked and as evil as the enemy 
There is just one difference. The difference is Christ died for us. You are this little worthless fire ant in the hand of God, yelling at him for destroying your dirt mound where you lived in squalor. And you're biting and stinging him and cursing God. And all he has to do is pinch you between his fingers and you never existed. You're done. And so there you are, yelling and cursing at God, biting and stinging him. And instead of closing his grip, he says, wait a moment. I'm going to send a son to your colony, and he will live among you. He will be perfect and holy and travel on your dirt paths and in your tunnels and work as you do. But your anger will be so fierce because he will offend you, and your pride will not allow you to listen to wisdom. And you will take him up on the highest mound, and you will kill him. But it is through this death that those he chose will one day be more than mere bugs crawling on the ground. Don't ask me to make sense of that plan. I only know about the beauty and glory of God in it. And what that beauty and glory of God does in our lives. That Christ became like us. He was no enemy, but he was the warrior sent to take back what was taken sent to fight the enemy to win the battle, and Christ did indeed win. And you are what he won. Hebrews chapter 4, 13 through 16. And no creature is hidden from my sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To him we must give an account since then we have Great, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is what we want. By the throne of God in Christ Jesus, he has won the war and he has called us to him and through that we are forever his and through that we were his enemies and now we are totally adopted as royal heirs of the throne of grace. This is your inheritance. And according to chapter 3, you didn't earn it, you can't ask for it, pray for it, or even realize that you needed it. It is by grace alone you are saved, grace alone you are called, and by grace alone you are made new. You are made new, not just fixed or repaired, but new. Here is what we have in the verses 1 through 2. Peace and a standing in grace. Therefore, having been justified by grace, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has talked about the only way of salvation is to be justified by grace through faith. 
But now he explains the benefits of that grace and peace justified by faith. Because of what Jesus did, the righteousness of God is given to those who were his enemies. Guilty of death. But we still deserving punishment, the guilty sentence is transformed into a sentence of justified. And justified by faith, by God's grace, we are saved through faith. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first benefit because the price is paid in full by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's justice towards us is eternally satisfied. This is not the peace of God spoken of in other places like in Philippians chapter 4, but this is peace with God. The battle between God and ourself is finished. And he won. The Bible doesn't say that we have peace with our enemy, peace with the world, peace with the flesh, peace with sin. Life is still a battle for the Christian, but it is no longer a battle against God, and it is no longer fighting against him. It is fighting with him and for him. And into this grace in which we stand, this is the second benefit. We have standing in this grace in God's unmerited favor. Because this grace is given through Jesus and gained by faith. Grace is not only the way of sal- way salvation comes to us. It is also the description of our present standing before God. It is not only the beginning of a Christian life. It is the culmination of that life and the end of that life. It is a continuing thing. A standing in grace reassures us that God's favor on us is the work of perfection in Christ Jesus, the perfect and holy one, that we are not just neutral territory now after being one, but we are victors as well. We do not, you don't have to prove that you are worthy of God's love. The door to the throne room is always open to you for the rest of your life in the throne of grace. There is no score sheet of your sins. The account is settled in Jesus because our standing is based on grace. We really can stand and have peace because we know that Jesus is forever and never changing. We can stand firm on this and though Doubts may arise and depression sinks in. Our assurance of salvation may one day be shaky, but they still stand firm and doubtless in God's eyes. Verses 3 and 4, the promise of glory is also for the present time. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Paul isn't sputtering out spiritual cliches here. First, he uses these strong words. Tribulation is a strong term. It does not refer to minor inconveniences, but real genuine hardships. Paul lived a life full of tribulation. Paul knew this truth better than anyone. 
And knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, we can glory in tribulation because they are the occasion to produce perseverance. A runner must be stressed to gain endurance. Sailors have to go to sea. Soldiers have to go to battle. For the Christian tribulation is a part of the Christian life, and we should not desire, we should not hope for, or pray for a tribulation-free life because God uses tribulation in a wonderfully way in your life. And if you remember way back to last year, the sermon that I did about Paul's thorn and that tribulations actually bring God glory, that our pains on this earth have eternal merit and it brings purpose to us and our sufferings. This is the ladder of Christian growth and maturity. One virtue builds upon another as we climb closer to the perfection of Christ. For good or for bad, it's all for his glory, it's all for his kingdom, and it's all for your good. Verse 5, evidence for hope. God's love in our hearts right now, evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us. Not a trickle, not a sprinkle, not a drip, but poured out into our hearts. This is how God's love is is communicated through the Holy Spirit. A lack of awareness of God's love can often be credited to a failure and to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk in that spirit. And everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit, but not every Christian lives in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not every Christian walks in the way of the Holy Spirit. And so when this doubt and these depression and and this lack of assurance comes in, it's scripture and it's prayer and it's going back to walking with the Holy Spirit that is the instant cure. Because it is by grace that we are saved and it is by grace that we live and it is by grace that we die and have eternity. Verses 6 through 8, a description of God's love towards us. For when we were still weak, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still weak, Paul describes the greatness of God's love. It is love given to the undeserved, to those without strength, to the ungodly, to the sinners. This emphasizes the fact that the reason for God's love are found in him and in him alone, not in us. This is how we know that he loves us and his grace is real, not because we are good, not because we've earned it, but because we are weak because we are enemies. And he blessed us freely, pouring out his love and shedding his grace on us. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent his son at the right time, at the due time. It may have seemed late to some, 
But Jesus' work was done at the perfect time and it may seem late to you in your own life that your trials will never end, but God's timing is perfect. And the fullness of God will be sent forth in his Son and in the Holy Spirit. The world was predestined spiritually, predestined economically, predestined linguistically, predestined politically, predestined philosophically, and predestined geographically for the coming of Jesus. And it's also all those things predestined for the second coming. And so to say and believe that Jesus died for you, you must also say that you are weak and you have no strength to save yourself, that you are ungodly, that you're a sinner, and that Jesus died to transform these. For scarcely, for a righteous man will one die. God's love is a love beyond even the best love among humans. A good man might die a noble death for the right kind of person. But Jesus died for those who were neither righteous nor good. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for for us is God's ultimate proof of his love for you. There is no greater proof. Because if the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, then it is also the ultimate demonstration of man's hatred. It also proves that the depths of man's hatred can't defeat the height of God's love for you. God's grace isn't displayed so much in that Jesus died, but in whom he died for. Undeserving sinners, rebels, and enemies. The gospel here, guys, it's brighter than the sun in the sky. You can't miss it. Is it alive in your life? Verses 9 through 11, the salvation from God's wrath. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were sinners we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have now received reconciliation. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, and it was placed on Jesus as a substitute in the place of the believers. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Now, we will be judged on the judgment day, but there will be no fear, for Christ has taken all that made us guilty and was judged in our stead and died. 
All that made Christ righteous has been blanketed on you and poured into your soul. And you are made righteous. So if we are justified by the works of Jesus, then we can be assured that we are also saved from this righteous wrath of God, whose wrath we are being saved from. God's wrath. It is true that we must be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But most of all, we must be rescued from the righteous wrath of God far more than anything else. When we were enemies and then reconciled to God, And if God showed such incredible love to us when we were his enemies, think of the blessing once we are reconciled to God. If God does this much for his enemies, how much more will he do for his children? This reconciliation isn't only beneficial in death, but touches your life right now. God doesn't deal with believers on the basis of wrath anymore or on the basis of you do good or you do bad and I will bless you. It's a basis of I am your father and you are my child and I'm going to bless you. You don't deserve it. I just love you. That's how God deals with us now. He may chasten them as a loving father, but not in punishment or payment for their sins. God only allows chastening to bring the loving conviction and guidance. Spurgeon said this, I am delighted to find that sin stings you and that you hate it. The more hatred of sin is the, that you have, the better. A sin-hating soul is a God-loving soul. If sin never distresses you, then God has never favored you. Do you hate sin that much? Because sin is far more detached from grace than grace is from glory. And so for God to give us his grace while we were yet sinners and is not just simply in the presence that grace brings God glory, it is God through us. that when we truly see ourselves for who we really are, then we can truly understand the ultimate grace of God. The world tells people that they're good enough and they're perfect just the way they are. And those lies sound nice, but it's only through grace that we can truly spend more time praising God and less time hating ourselves. And only through this grace can we truly be perfect enough. And only through this grace can we see that we are no longer going to face his wrath. And only through this grace that we can truly be enough. But that when you feel the displeasure and the chastening hand of God, it is that of a loving father. Do you see that his grace is alive and breathing? That his grace is causing your heart to beat right now? 
that you are not capable of even blinking on your own, that your very next breath could be taken away. Man can't even cure a cold, so what would make him think that God's grace is something that can be earned or even salvation be asked for by being good enough? In depression, in discouragement, in doubt, in fear, and even death itself, this is our only true hope. His grace is there, poured into your life with love that can never be taken away. This, this is our assurance. And that as wretched as we were, holiness stood beside evil. Perfection walked with imperfection. And God himself gave himself. Not because we were good. Not because we were even neutral. But because we were lost, enslaved, and dead in our sins. Can a dead man choose life? No. He cannot choose anything. God made the choice. God gave himself. God poured his life in you and now he is calling you to his throne of grace. This is our assurance. This is our hope. Heavenly Father, thank you for this hope. Thank you for this assurance. We didn't deserve it. But in your greatness and in your love and in your mercy, you showed us who you really are and who we really are. And we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.